Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode of Haunting True Crime Podcast. It's your host, Sierra, and I'm here with a story about the Kansas City Strangler. So this is a true crime story that happened between the years of 1970 and let's say about 1995 or when the victims were found. And I can't really find a lot of information about the victims, but I found like a crap ton of information about the serial killer. So I guess we're just going to hop right into this. To preface this, I wanted to show that his family has a history of violent crimes. His father, uh, Lorenzo Gilliard Sr., was convicted of rape in 1970. His brother, Daryl, was convicted of a drug-related murder of his buddy in some kind of drug deal. In 1989, it was sentenced to life without parole. His half-sister on his mother's side, Patricia Dixon, who was also a prostitute, was convicted of the murder of a customer in 1983, and I found information that it was over $35, so she tried to kill a guy for $35. All right. But she served 10 years for that. And so in his younger years, Lorenzo Gilliard Jr., I'm going to refer to him as Lorenzo because we're done talking about his dad, he was known to bully and sometimes beat women. That doesn't really say much for his character at this point. And he married for the first time at 18. He married his high school sweetheart. Over the course of his life, he fathered 11 children with several wives and girlfriends. In the past, he was in and out of jail and prison in the late 70s and 80s on charges ranging from molestation and sexual abuse to burglary and assault. For the younger Gilliard, the 1970s were marked with periodic scrapes with the law, a weapons charge disturbing the peace, lying to officers, and it usually got him a short jail time and some small fines. Court records and newspaper accounts reveal that during a six-month period in 1974, he was arrested twice for rape. In February of that year, he was accused of raping a 25-year-old exotic dancer near the 27th Street and Troost Avenue. Later, she identified Gilliard's Chevrolet convertible and picked him out of a lineup. Prosecutors never obtained a conviction in the incident, unfortunately. This following July, he was charged with raping a friend's 13-year-old sister near the Missouri River. So then he was charged with beating and raping the 13-year-old girl. He told the police that she was lying, and ultimately he pled guilty to molesting the girl and received a nine-month sentence in Jackson County Jail. The body of Stacy L. Swafford, who was 17, was found on April 17th of 1977. According to the Jackson County court records, Gilliard was accused in 1979 of kidnapping a couple and raping the woman while holding her boyfriend hostage at gunpoint. Although the boyfriend picked Gilliard out from a police lineup and hairs from the victim were found in the building where Gilliard worked as a maintenance worker, jurors acquitted him of rape in September of 1980. This guy has some kind of luck. I mean, it's bad luck for us and good luck for him, so I don't know what you would call it, but he has some kind of luck. Before he was acquitted for this crime against the couple, on January 23rd of 1980, the body of 15-year-old Gwendolyn Kisney was found. The same year, he was convicted of aggregated assault for threatening to shoot his third wife. She divorced him in January of 1981. The next month, Gilliard assaulted his ex-wife twice, beating and pistol-whipping her during one attack and breaking her front teeth and stabbing her in the arm with an ice pick in the second attack. 
He was convicted of third-degree assault in each case. He mainly served probation for these crimes. Okay, in my opinion, this sounds like this guy was trying to kill her. Why else would you have an ice pick that you're stabbing her with? It sounds like she was moving too much they so couldn't stab her in the chest. And he served probation. Why? <sighs> in November of 1981, Gilliard earned his first sentence to a state prison in Missouri when he was sentenced to four years for second-degree burglary. He began serving his sentence on May 8th of 1982, which was eight days after they found the body of Margaret J. Miller, who was 17, on May 9th of 1982. He was released for parole on January 10th of 1983, but returned to prison after violating the terms of his release. I couldn't really find a lot of information on what he did to violate them. Following a complaint from Wyandotte County authorities in 1983, Gilliard was sentenced to a Missouri prison for up to four years for making a bomb threat. Shocker. On his return, Gilliard appeared to settle down. He went to work for the company that employed his father in its maintenance department, Deffenbaugh Disposal Service. Gilliard began working in residential trash collection for the company on January 2nd of 1986. He began his career on the back of a trash truck and worked his way up to driver, and then it was 2002, he was promoted to supervisor. So, on March 14th, 1986, the body of Catherine M. Barry, who was 34, was found. On August 16th of 1986, the body of 23-year-old Naomi Kelly was found. On November 27th of 1986, the body of 32-year-old Debbie Blevins was found. On April 17th of 1987, the body of 36-year-old Ann Barnes was found. On June 9th of 1987, a body of Kelly Ann Ford, who was 20, was found. September 12th of 1987, the body of Angela M. Mayhew was found. And I don't really have an age for her, and I don't have an age for Sheila Ingold either. But Sheila Ingold was found on November 3rd of 1987. And December 19th of 1987, the body of 30-year-old Carmeline R. Hibbs was found. But the company spokesperson for Deffenbaugh Disposal Service his name is Tim Kaufman, and he said that Lorenzo was a reliable employee. Quote, he had respect for his peers and was even-tempered and friendly. End quote. He would bring gifts to people here regularly, like on their birthdays. People close to Gilliard described him as reliable, friendly, helpful, hardworking, and quick to make a joke. Lorenzo's neighbors described him also as friendly and helpful. Once he picked up trash on his street, he knocked on a neighbor's door because the neighbor had forgotten to put out his trash. Aw, he sounds so nice. Note the sarcasm. Neighbor said that he was proud of his job and his two Mercedes, and that on weekends he would sometimes hit golf balls in his backyard. And on his front door hung a wooden sign engraved with the last name Gilliard, and below hid the names of Lorenzo and Jackie, who was his wife when he was convicted of these murders. And though he's been married several times, the latest marriage to Jackie had lasted about a decade. So neighbor Lee Weldon said, I'm shocked. He's a real nice guy, a nice neighbor. But his name jumped to attention with police in 1989. One night he had helped a neighbor load a bicycle into her car and later invited her to an omelet dinner in his home. 
After three or four glasses of wine, Gilead reached across the table and began pulling at the woman's top, saying he wanted to see her breast. She recoiled and backed through the studio apartment, landing on a bed with Gilead straddling her waist. I kept telling him that all I wanted to do was go home, the woman said later. Let me go home. Let me go home. And the entire time, Gilead said that he was going to kill himself. He took a kitchen knife and placed it at his own throat and then at the woman's. Afterward, Gilead let the woman leave. She immediately called the police and they charged him with forcible sodomy, sexual abuse, and assault. And the case was headed to trial and he pled guilty for everything except the sodomy on October 30th of 1989. But the victim agreed to a plea bargain because she didn't want her mental health history debated before a jury. She also did not want to admit that she had been drinking before the accident. The plea deal had something for Gilliard, too. He was placed on probation for three years and was required to seek counseling for sexual abuse and anger control. Gee, I wonder if it helped. On January 11th of 1993, the body of Connie Luther was found, and she was 29. But then, here's where it gets a little fishy. So, one of his neighbors had also had troubles with him. So, according to court records, he had approached this woman in September of 1995 and began describing intimate details about this woman, like, to her. And she began to suspect that he was stalking her. And then so, for months, he made unwanted advances and included lewd gestures and, quote, I pointed out to him that he is married, to which he simply shrugs indicates that what his wife doesn't know won't hurt her, end quote. And then he tried to act like a friendly neighbor and bring her firewood. And she said, quote, I felt like there was a control game at issue here, end quote. She answered her doorbell early one morning and found Lorenzo standing there with a newspaper. She said, quote, he eyed me in his robe and made an obscene sexual gesture. I yelled, I'm not interested, end quote. Other times she saw him looking in her... Other times, she saw him looking in her window, gross, and she saw him lurking outside her home at night. Quote, as a deaf single woman living alone, I fear for my safety and security in my house. End quote. In July of 1996, the neighbor filed for an order of protection and moved out of town. The other neighbor said they also had problems with him. Penny Bradley said that her husband and her were moving a new television into their home in the fall of 2001, when they backed the truck into Gilliard's driveway. He came out and confronted them about being on his property, which is marked with signs that warn against trespassing. A sign posted on a large tree in his front yard says, Private Driveway, Do Not Enter. Her husband went inside his home to talk with him, and Penny said that while there, Lorenzo displayed two guns. And that's kind of creepy. Like, oh, I'm going to shoot you because you came in my driveway for like 30 seconds, probably. Okay. But they filed a police report because obviously he threatened to shoot them, basically. Um, and then other neighbors confirmed that the Bradleys had reported to them that they had trouble with Mr. Gilliard. Penny said that she seldom saw him with his wife, except for when he was washing his Mercedes and a Land Rover. When news broke about Lorenzo being charged with 12 murders, Karen Drake, who lived several doors down from his home, was shocked. 
Drake said her daughter recently sold and delivered Girl Scout cookies to him, whom she described as a friendly, good neighbor. He was just a really nice guy, she said. He bought three boxes. And his ex-wife, the one I mentioned earlier that was his high school sweetheart, Raina Hill. Alright, so Raina Hill would now be 69 years old in 2020. She married him in 1968 after she got pregnant, and they divorced after what Hill described as five years of torture. He destroyed my life, and now it's crept up. He destroyed my life, and now it's crept back up. It's horrible. End quote. Hill agreed to be interviewed on the condition that she be identified only by her maiden name. She is remarried and tried to put her life with Lorenzo behind her. Raina and Lorenzo met in high school and attended dances together. She described him as fun, but that changed when they were married. The physical and mental abuse was almost continuous. He beat me and raped me. He threatened me and said he'd kill me. Sounds like a real nice guy. Gilliard wouldn't let her use all the rooms of their home. He loved nice things, pretty things, but you can't use them. He made me live in one room, the bedroom, for five years. Hill has received psychiatric help for the abuse she suffered during the marriage, but her nerves have been bothering her since his arrest. Yeah, so Lorenzo, he's accused of strangling a dozen women, and this is one of the state's largest serial murder cases, and he has barely any coverage. I don't understand. But the police went to his home in the 8300 block of Kenwood Avenue hoping to find souvenirs or trophies from his victims which are items that the serial killer will take because they want to relive the crime and it's usually like in a sexual way so on April 16th 2004 officers reported that they seized two audio tapes video cassette tapes and a mini cassette recorder Returning on Saturday with a new warrant, police seized a gray floor safe, a key, a combination lock, a computer, shoes, bras, and a pair of women's panties. Police also searched his 2002 Land Rover and a white Ford Ranger pickup truck, but apparently found little of interest. Investigators did not find the items they sought, including a white scarf, jewelry, and other items from the victims. Authorities accused Lorenzo of raping several women, but they never convicted him of rape. He was, however, convicted of molestation, sexual abuse, and assaults. And now police allege he's also a serial killer, a man who preyed for 17 years on women who walked the streets. They say he killed 10 women and 2 girls from 1977 through 1993. If he were to be convicted of all 12 of them, he would have been the worst serial killer in Missouri history. Um, he would join the list that has Ray Sean Jackson, who admitted to strangling six women in or near Gillum Park uh, between 1989 and 1990. Also, it would be John E. Robinson, who killed eight women in Johnson and Cass counties in the 1980s and 1990s. And Bob Berdella, who committed six torture murders of men in Kansas City in the 1980s. So he was held without bail and he pled innocent to all the charges. Because, shocker. So, prosecution focused mainly on DNA evidence and it shows that he had had sex with women around the time they were killed. And, 
quote, all the victims have had several things in common. All were found dead during the same one and a half year period. All were left in secluded or obstructed locations. All were strangled. All showed signs that they were involved in a struggle. All were missing their shoes. And all but one showed distinct signs of sexual intercourse. And that was by the prosecution attorney, Jim Cantazar. So he was eventually convicted of murdering 34-year-old Catherine Berry, 23-year-old Naomi Kelly, 36-year-old Ann Barnes, 20-year-old Kelly Ford, 36-year-old Sheila Ingold, and 30-year-old Carmeline Hibbs. And they brought the murder of Angela Mayhew, who was 19, to court, but he was acquitted because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him of murdering Angela. So, a few notes. Um, all of his victims, you know, most, if not all of his victims, were sex workers, which may have something to do with the fact that his sister is a sex worker and he resents it, maybe. Um, they all were found without shoes and they were dumped in weird secluded spots in the city. And if I remember right from the episode of Serial Killer with Piers Morgan, which if you haven't seen it, it's really good. I recommend it. It's on Netflix. Um, Sheila Ingold was found in an abandoned van. Yeah, like a one of those panel vans that doesn't have windows on the back. You know, it, I think it was one of those. So it was just really weird. They all had cloth or paper towels stuffed in their mouth. I don't know. They all had ligature marks around their necks. So now is the part where I traditionally give my opinion. And it's really not hard for me to give my opinion on this case. Because I think he's guilty. I think he's guilty. He's serving life without parole in prison for the murder of six women who had his DNA on them. He likes to claim that the police mixed up his DNA evidence. They mixed up his DNA sample with somebody else's in the lab and it was a lab mistake and that he didn't actually do it because he didn't know these women so how could he have killed them and I was telling my mom about this a few days ago and I looked at her and I was like he didn't have to know him to kill him which I think makes the most sense like you don't have to know everybody that you have an interaction with like you can go talk to somebody on the street and you don't know them but you still talk to them same thing with murdering people. You don't have to know them if you kill them, but you still kill them. But he claims that he's never had sex with these women. He doesn't know them. He had never interacted with them before. He thinks that the police framed him and this, that, and the other. But with him molesting a 13-year-old girl and holding a couple kidnapped and kidnapping a couple and like holding the boyfriend hostage at gunpoint while he rapes the guy's girlfriend and then beating his ex-wife and pistol whipping her and stabbing her with an ice pick and all that good stuff it just makes me feel like this is a violent guy and just because his co-workers didn't see him act violently doesn't mean that he's not violent at home or on his personal time it just means that he's really good at hiding it at work you know what I mean so I don't really think that that's an accurate way to describe him because they didn't know what he was like outside of work just because he brought them birthday presents on their birthdays. Like, what the heck? But I don't know. 
this is kind of a shorter episode, so I apologize, but I'm gonna let you guys kind of make your own opinion on this one. You already know how I feel, and I presented, you know, a case to you, albeit it's kind of biased because I think he's guilty, and I gave you the background that kind of pretty much almost proves he's guilty, but according to him, but according to him, he's innocent and he doesn't even like the term serial killer. Like, Piers Morgan, in their interview, referred to him as serial killer, and he got pissed off, and he goes, okay, we're done here, and, like, takes his mic off, and he goes, I'm ready to go back, and the guard, like, takes him back to his cell and shit, all because Piers Morgan called him a serial killer, and he even explained to him, you know, I'm calling you a serial killer because you were, you know, accused of these murders. You know, you were accused, you were charged with these so I'm going to call you a serial killer because that's how, you know, everyone else is going to describe you. And he got so pissed off. And I'm like, why are you so pissed off unless it's true, buddy? I don't know. Like I said earlier, I'm going to let you kind of make your own decision. Maybe you think he's innocent. Everybody I've ever told about this story thinks he's probably guilty. But then again, like I said, I feel biased because I give them information that is probably biased. So, I'll let you decide. Either way, somebody is a fucked up person for being able to do this to 12 women. Well, 10 women and 2 young girls. Like, that's just fucked up. So, I guess we're going to end it here. Um, I love you guys. Sorry for the break in the uploading. I meant to upload days ago, but my maintenance the maintenance guy in my apartment building is working on the apartment next door and banging on stuff and I started working out and going to the gym and it's just kind of hard to try to figure out a certain day to sit down and do this um so I'm going to try to fix my schedule to where I'm uploading steadily for you guys um but I apologize for the wait I love you guys and I'll see you in the next episode bye